0: Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, and today I'm joined by fashion and lifestyle brand marketer and creative visionary, Marcus Thiel. Marcus, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Doug. It's been, it, it, it's so exciting for me to be on your podcast. And, and I've been doing a deep dive um, since the pandemic, since there's nothing else to do except like listen and get educated, which is what I've been doing. And I've learned so much from you and your guests.
1: Well, that is high praise. You yourself are very much an industry veteran. Uh, but in really such an evolving and changing and morphing space within the fashion and lifestyle industry. Um, You know, how did you make the transition from legacy media, which was where the industry was and was very comfortable uh, to web 3.0 and, and modern media. And what has that shift meant for consumers?
0: Um, I well, let's see, it's, it's a long look back from, from ingenue to veteran. <laughs> so, and, and in that process, we've gone from legacy media um, through Web3, where we are right now. And I would love to say that, you know, uh, what are we talking about? 1991, when I started, to think that I had some kind of strategy going into um, the business. But truth is, nothing. There was no strategy involved. It was literally me and some kind of a divining rod that had taken me through uh, all the different eras, (laughs) if you will, of of, um, the business, really. Um, I, you know, it's going to be a very, very long story. and, And I'm going to refer back to a little bit of Bridget the police interview because just
1: listeners love long stories. They, they hate me sucking the air out of the room, so to speak. So talk away. I know it's a, it's an open-ended first question, but I think the history of, of where the industry has had to pivot on the way in which brand and storytelling is communicated is, is so important. And you are one of the few people who really has lived on both sides of that border, so to speak.
0: I I have loved just doing what I do as a job as a, uh, in that creative field, but um, the transitions between legacy media to digital, to branding, to web one and now web three, those transitions, I think I haven't had much time to look back and, and I think I'm using this podcast as a therapy session if you will for me to try to go back into what happened um because i i don't think i remember them that clearly only because i'm you know trying to get to the next phase which everyone you're more is more
1: comfortable reclining on the couch by the way feel free we can edit the shot and you know get you just in a more relaxed position it,
0: there is a great corbusier one out there that we could <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you and but, I, you and I know our spaces, each other's spaces, pretty well. So I do happen to know that. That would be uh, that would be, but but let's keep you as you as you are, and well, uh, we'll find another we'll
0: find another conversation for that, and and that involves a drink as well. So, um, so what had started? I'll I'll, I'll go through the very brief because I again my wish was I had a strategy and a roadmap of how I went from graduating college but it just never turned out that way i came to nyu to study film simple thing it's you know was to go into auditioning i tried to be an actor while i was writing um which i was doing a lot of but um in the short form of it acting wasn't paying the bills and a lot of auditions so i did graduate um, from NYU in film and journalism. So as a good Asian boy, I, you know, took on two majors just to make sure my parents were appeased uh, in case one thing fails, as the other. Actually, I liked them. I didn't even tell them about film. They had no idea I was studying.
1: You film. told them you were majoring in law and medicine.
0: I was supposed to pack. My, my bags were packed to go to England. Um, To University of Kent to study law, but somewhat I just didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. And I changed my mind. Um, There was, you know, I I decided I was going to come to New York and study film. But the compromise was to take on journalism, which was a respectable career (laughs) move. Um, So I took that on. But luckily I did, because while I was auditioning, um, somehow I also pounded, it um, yeah, through an internship, actually, an internship back at Mirabella magazine when that was around. And right. that kind of opened my eyes to, so, hey, I actually do like the idea of working in media and magazines. Um, cut through to when I was auditioning, I found a dear friend who was a f- great photographer. She wanted to shoot pictures of like New York nightlife and events and parties. And... She took me on as a sidekick, and she found magazines in Europe, uh, mostly Italy and Germany, and I found some magazines in Singapore and in Asia to write about New York nightlife and events and parties. Um, So that was my entry, and a lot of people kept saying, oh my god, you partied a lot back in the day, but this was the reason why and how I started it. and that kind of paid the bills for a while. And in that, and and the funny thing was, I was writing in English, but I remember having to go to uh, a cafe on McDougall Street to get the waitress, who's an amazing translator, to translate it into Italian. And then my Japanese restaurant friend who had to translate it into Japanese to like send it to a magazine in Japan. So you did what you can um, back, it you wasn't go. Cafe
1: Reggio, was it?
0: Yes, it was Cafe Reggio on MacDougall with the chocolate mud pie. I would have the chocolate okay. mud pie while the waitress would take.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was my my first apartment in New York City was right across the street from Cafe Reggio. That that little. It was place. that in law school? Because I was in law. It was, was law it school housing. School? If. Uh, if you were not yeah. to to be in one of the the big towers, so uh, I was exactly. not so inclined. I lived with the mice, and uh, you know, in a faux fireplace, but uh, across from Cafe Reggio. Which, by the way, you know, on most uh, Friday, Saturday nights, even Thursday nights, didn't really get to the point where you could fall asleep until about two thirty. Oh, yeah.
0: Anyway, it was I'm completely <laughs> breaking
1: your flow as. Uh, as, as I oh, do no, sometimes, they're... but um, but no, that brings me back. So so the 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 element of you know it's it's uh, you probably know Patrick McMullen as well as I do. You know these these yeah. these positions in of insight into what certainly during the eighties and nineties was really very cultural. I mean, we still very much went out. And that was how you mixed, you didn't have emails, you didn't have the internet or social media to connect, you had to physically be present. And so being out, while undeniably fun in most instances was also pretty much a requisite in the creative industries.
0: Um, and and I, th- I think just New York life and living. I think everyone that, you know, people are fascinated at this point in time, culturally, for New York City, whether it's a friend, Leibowitz or uh, or Mickey Portman, you know, and it just everyone went out because if you didn't, I'm not sure what you would be doing. <laughs> and and prior to that, you know, Tamar Jenowitz and Brett Easton Ellis. So that that particular era of New York was super exciting, but it also kind of laid the groundwork to how things are done right now, even in the digital era. Um, I think there's a lot of going out that's still happening that creates these little pockets of um, cultural movement. That, and, and if you're excited about, you know, where New York's going, where, what's happening, you still look at these bubbles. Right to give you some kind of direction, whether it's a trend, whether it's a cultural shift, whether uh, whether it's just having a good time, which you know a lot of it was. Um, someone just wrote like when the first love ball was, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember covering that um, um, in what was that, 1989, 1991, and I kept telling everyone, I, you know, I was 10 years old, <laughs> but but. I, I well, I
1: remember that. when the CFDA kind of reprised it. You know, they kind of underwrote it yes. three or four years ago, which was really nice to see. But those yes. those are are definitely storied moments in in New York history. And let's face it; I mean, we do have a city that you know, even from Harlem to Brooklyn, uh, you can still get to reasonably easily unlike you know if the party's happening in the Hollywood Hills and you happen to be in the Pacific Palisades in LA right forget it you're not going
0: right but it, it's also takes you back to that scene and oh god like Saturday Night Fever when Tony comes you know to the city he's ready he's dressed and this you know the sun is setting and that's when Things come alive, uh, the cultural connectors of the city, and the, somewhat even later when you know I was at uh, first DNR and women's wear and W, um, it, it the excitement of watching things happen, but the business connections, the cultural connections, they all kind of swirl in this amazing, you know, in this amazing um, um, pot, right, and. That still happens today. Something that hasn't changed, um, which which kind of brings me back to when I was, you know, just again pounding the pavement, trying to be an actor. Um, luckily, I wrote a several uh, profile on fashion designers when I was doing writing, um, and fashion has always been somewhat. I I had been adjacently interested in fashion and had. Uh, even in in London when I was growing up with my cousin who kind of is a big fan of Kenzo. Um, and Kenzo at that point was owned by Joseph et who started the Joseph stores. And Joseph in London is pretty much like Barney's or Charivari, which I later worked at um, in New York. So just for that particular interest in fashion, again, no formal training. I, I you know I, I still think cultural, excitement is what you need to be in fashion i think you you need to really love culture and change and um and all all the facets of it but um i wrote a several profiles on a fashion designer and designer zhang toy um asked me if uh, i wanted to work with him in fashion he needed a pr director um he needed somebody to have Uh, to have had magazine access and through my internship at uh, Mirabella I knew some of the editors so that was my first foray into fashion and the exciting thing about working with a young designer which has not changed today is you get to take in all facets of the business Um, at that point I was the PR director my of what I was interested in was fashion uh, media and dealing with the publications and dealing with uh, marketing. But at the same time, I remember before fashion shows, I was camping, sleeping underneath the cutting table in the showroom as things were getting produced. Uh, you know, not just doing seating charts, but like helping in beating the outfits. It, it's so exciting. You get to learn everything that goes into fashion and to me i think at the at the end of this podcast i i think i'm just an eternal student when it comes to um the business when it comes to traversing the changes the evolution in legacy media to business to web3 through modern media through fashion uh, lifestyle accessories jewelry hospitality how everything just comes into this cocktail punch um, it's, it's only because I'm just always learning um, well, so and you, I think it's important
1: you certainly practice. have had very specific experience in jewelry um, hmm. really with two of the storied houses on the planet I mean uh, the Dutch brand George Jensen of course uh, and then the massive global, Hong Kong-based brand, uh, Chow Tai Fook, But maybe, um, well, let's start with, what is it about jewelry that you find appealing?
0: Um, and that also came by default because while I was working on men's portfolio, Eddie Lita was starting up a gift guide And this was around the same time as uh, Natalie Messeney had her, um, I'm blanking on the name of her catalog, which is about fantastic uh, gifts, items from all categories, men's, women's, design. Um, My job was to pick the best of everything from furniture and design and work on the still life, what's the best way of showing it. Um, and we did the W gift guide, which was pretty successful. And in that process, I just realized I love design above everything else, right? Storytelling and design. So you can throw anything at me and my job is to like create the best visual imagery out of it to tell us lasting story creates an impression makes you want to buy something or makes you want to live a certain life makes you want to wear a certain outfit whatever it might be and that's storytelling so um and and in that process i think and and this comes back to where the jewelry question is um, one of the things i started shooting was jewelry and before that i had i, I really had zero uh interests in jewelry as a category but working with still life photographers and and this kind of has a broad context to it so i have fashion which is you know large team with like trailer bands and exotic locations and models and, and there's so much character and personality which i love it's like filmmaking but I was also working with the world's best still-life photographers. It, I, I realized I had this dual personality that, that needed to be, um, that that needed attention. I love the big, large fashion productions. But when I'm with my still-life photographers, you are working minutely with that one thing or the several like little elements that go into the picture. And that little element has to tell as much of a story as... I don't know a fashion editorial or an entire movie now how do you do that and that that was a challenge that I proposed myself and that was one thing I learned from still life photographers how do you communicate with each other and how do you actually create the best imagery and that's how it really got into jewelry when you when you start looking at it and scale it like it's sculpture that's why jewelry is fantastic that's why Elsa Peretti is who she is you know that's why David Webb puts together all of this like elements to create that's how David Yorman and you know the cable on a on a wrist to me didn't mean that much I hate to say it but when I have it in front of me in the camera I was like this is spectacular it's beautiful um and that that's That's how I really got interested in jewelry in the beginning. And here's the one thing, when you work with communicative, highly skilled communicators, which will come to the big picture of how to be successful in this industry. I really appreciate highly communicative people. Um, There's a photographer I work with, Greg Broom, who somehow when I was listening to him like describe you know how to place the tag for your watch in a, in a beaker of water but just the communication that we had made it so precise that you get things done right and correctly and i think that's really really important because if you get your communication right you can create the best images it, it also allows room for things that will shift and that in that process, you're like, oh my God, you just suddenly got the best image ever.
1: Well, um, and unlike the law or most elements of business, hmm. creatives communicating with creatives, I think is tantamount to someone from Kazakhstan bumping into someone from Ecuador in Times Square and trying to communicate whatever they're trying to communicate, which is to say a lot of that creative spark is hard to even articulate in your native tongue you know and so when you can find a language with other creatives where you're clicking you are understanding what she says or he says and you're able to execute on your element of expertise in that environment whether it's the lighting or the choice of lens or just the choice of photographer or model, that is priceless, but hard to. Uh, it's like creating a, a symphony, right?
0: But but all of those elements are so necessary, and and I think also it comes to the success of the early years of um, of W and and how. Dennis had created these images that speak a certain language, like fashion and film, right? They're, they're all their own language. Someone, you can just show a still from a particular movie, but if it moves somebody from, like you said, Kazakhstan or Romania, it moves the person the same way, then, then we've achieved our goal. Um, you know, and and we're all quite aware, like, we're selling emotion in some way, we're selling something or we're conveying a story. So that that comes into marketing, which, you know, I, I truly think that my filmmaking experience has been quite important uh, in in later marketing work, <laughs> which I still, you know, marketing is not my favorite thing because you're trying to sell somebody something that they don't want yet, unless I believe in the product, which is how I've, you know, I've come to pick um who I work for.
1: Well storytelling but, um, extremely important. You know no mystery to me that that Tom Ford will go on to direct multiple additional films, you know, to uh, yes. af- after his life as a designer. But um, but but back to jewelry and and yep. it's draw to you and I loved what you said uh because there's there's a legal relevance to it candidly. Uh in terms of jewelry being part really sculpture and art. I mean, with apparel and accessories and other fashion items, there's an undeniable useful element to them. I I don this coat because it's cold outside today. Um, I wear this watch because it tells me the time. But when I put a pendant around my neck, there's actually no articulatable Useful function to that other than adornment, and so it falls onto what intellectual property law loves—the artistic side of a spectrum, as opposed to the utility utility side of a spectrum, which which affords it a lot more protectability. So so back into jewelry, I mean, you you have had quite a bit of experience with with major jewelry brands, um, and and. You, you've also articulated that the focus is usually on the actual piece itself, and so you don't get usually grand vistas. You get you get moody lighting, and you maybe get a woman's arm or a man's chest, or you know. So, what are the challenges within such a confined space to storytell with jewelry?
0: Um, I, th- I think getting the story right is a challenge across the board for everyone so I also don't think that you know I I think the demands from the I don't know from from the market to show jewelry a certain way has always been you know it's, it's a little bit of my art because I feel like that that's how I work I'm like listen this is how everyone's doing it how do we tell the story uh, in a different way, right? Or how do we communicate the story in the most concise manner so that um, the story is told? And, and that separates different brands. Like John Hardy has a very strong story. Um, and that continues on depending on how, which, whoever the, the creative director is, and they've gone through so many. So we're excited to see what this new iteration of it would read um, you know, at the helm. So, um, but, well, let's just say, I don't think it's a challenge because I've just seen a lot of younger, um, new upstart jewelry designers. And I do think that they all have strong stories that a larger brand is not able to um, to embrace because they're so encumbered by, you know, sales and production and, and who do they need to sell to the masses, right? And I think that particular model of like challenge in storytelling is the same in, in fashion. Um, so I, I don't think it's that difficult. And to your point, the idea of adornment, it, it goes beyond that because jewelry has whether you believe in or not, uh, spiritual properties. They are amulets. They are protective um, properties. They are also, you know, through the history of time, a defining, um, a defining sign of your status in society. And that's sad or not sad in in this age, it, uh, it's still it's still a pretty. Um, that's still pretty adhered to, um, but also, uh, you know, I'm going to jump a little bit because you, you mentioned about like fashion and, and how cultural signs, right? Like what a person wears has shows who or what they are or the story to convey. We went into like how if you are, you know, in the middle of in Warsaw and somebody wears, I don't know, uh, a Fortuny dress to a, a party, you're like, okay, this person knows what they're talking about, right? Uh, and, and if you go to, you know, a wedding and the bride's wearing Simone Rocha and the wedding could be in Orange County, which I, I don't know, I haven't gone to an Orange County wedding where someone wears Simone Rocha, but let's just say, then you're like, oh, I know. And you, you're creating your, your, your cultural um, tribe right so these particular like little cultural signs it's what jewelry can tell it's the same thing as fashion so there there are a lot of stories that you can compact into a visual Um, and by visual I do mean like you know it's not always a still the still is a challenge but a still can be from video and the great thing about my work and my experience in the past is like in the last what 15 years video and content requiring moving images have been so um it, it's a necessity and that goes back into my good old film training which i thought was a little bit lost um in the early years of like fashion and marketing so yeah
1: well absolutely i mean the moving image much more dynamic uh but challenging you know particularly with an item which has sculptural elements, you know, but, um, but a, such an opportunity to to show it in different environments. Um, and I'll, I'll not question you on whether that was Orange County, New Jersey or Orange County, California, I, I, I suspect oh. the latter, but, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless. Um, speaking of, of places far afield. Um, interestingly, you've done maybe as much work. Uh, as you have in jewelry, in hospitality. So Mm -hmm. tell us about that and and tell us about how you feel, you know, fashion and hospitality are, are simpatico.
0: So when, when Bridget asked me to do the, uh, I was responsible for like, I think it was five years of the, uh, what was a trend page where we pull in every discipline from design, men's, women's, uh, furniture, art, um, jewelry, and and try to tell like a trend story in one page. I kind of realized like, it's so interconnected at this point in time, you know, what lifestyle is. And we're talking about 20 years ago and it made sense when um, I think you had brought up that Bulgari had the Bulgari hotels and Armani was starting um, post Armani Casa. They were doing. Uh, they were starting to look at hospitality. So it made perfect sense that it's a complete. Um, it's it's a complete expression of a brand, um, and I love that because it's it's really building your entire culture, um, and I think in terms of. How I got into it—it it was first quite, um, as with everything, organic. I love to stay at great hotels, <laughs> don't we? Um, and and have have very much, uh, you know, have very much grown up with that that particular observation of service um, and what it takes for the best hotels in the world, but. At the same time, you know the structure, the space also needs to tell a story, right? The same um, hotel in Bali may not convey the same story in um, Lake Como, for example. Or, and how how do you actually capture the essence of that particular hotel? The Four Seasons Group has done quite well. Um, I just recently stayed at the Four Seasons in Langkawi, in Malaysia, and I somewhat reminded me of the service you know I would get back in Milan, for example. And that, that particular threat is really important in um, creating uh, a sense of hospitality, a sense, sense of space, a sense, a sense of service, an expectation that you will get everywhere else, but with a cultural shift. I do want the same kind of service and and all that, but I don't want to be in, you know, the same padded room in the same, in different countries. So I think that makes it really interesting. Uh, Not so much of a challenge, but like creating, you know, it it goes back to film, like how, what's the difference between a Wes Anderson movie, a Sofia Coppola movie than a Michael Bay movie, for example, right? the the cultural aesthetic like preciseness of it is wonderful and once you've got that setting you let emotions and everything go crazy which um which i still think is how i approach uh my work yeah yeah what was the question i feel like i just ran 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 no
1: no 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 i mean look these are um there's a weaving to all of this that's undeniable, um, and and we could name you know 20 other directors that have influenced personal style and perhaps hospitality and and other elements, but 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 to focus you, um, mm. you know, so obviously Bulgari with with a chain of of exceptional hotels, and it does seem that um, jewelry in particular has has embraced hospitality as affixing their brand to it and, and finding it brand appropriate, perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. apparel fashion, more, more focusedly considered in apparel has, has done less. So, I mean, I, Armani, you mentioned, and that's undeniable. Uh, and I think that did stem from Casa Armani. So it almost is more like, you know, an extension of Casa Armani than, than the apparel brand. But, um, you know what what do you think it might be the future for fashion brands because i do think there is a consumer for say the rose uh palm springs hotel or uh rag and bones edinburgh lodging house you know I, I, and i don't know that those brands want to do that but i do think if 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 my finger is anywhere near the pulse of of the zeitgeist, I do think consumers would respond to that.
0: Um, It's, you know, quite naturally. So I keep thinking about a Ralph Lauren hotel, right? Within that be a very natural expression, um, as you mentioned, the row as well. Um, Those particular brands are completely poised to take the brand experience further because there there are already worlds that you live in so it would be interesting to take these worlds further um it again it does provide a little bit of a challenge because fashion and what the particular trend moment um shifts and that's the one thing i think that you know, I think fashion companies find it's a little bit challenging because they don't know if the consumer is going to get the same effect. For example, if you want to do a Saint Laurent hotel, right, Saint Laurent's current aesthetic is a little colder than um, than what, I, I mean, I can see what a Saint Laurent hotel looks like. But then again, if you did Saint Laurent in Marrakech, and if you've seen the Fantastic museum. This um, house. Now that that's also an entire expression on its own. So, is that the brand expression or is that the designer's view? Um, I think that that is one thing the brands need to settle on before they kind of launch into um, hospitality. It's a lot easier for a design firm.
1: Yeah. Well, and maybe the middle ground, and we have seen this with brands, particularly fashion brands, sort of having takeovers of a hotel so in a sense a collaboration with an existing hotel chain where they take over so to speak or they brand sometimes a particular area of the hotel uh or the entire hotel for a season and in a way that's a um it's more like dating before you truly get married to being in hospitality i would think um But I do very much take your point that, yeah, uh, apparel, you know, fashion apparel, much more seasonal than, say, jewelry or other brands that have taken themselves into hospitality. And, um, you know, of course, we all love the Polo Bar in New York, but, um, you know, it's hard to imagine that outside of New York and, and living in every major city in the U.S. or cities overseas.
0: It is. I mean, the, the polo bar's um, aesthetic and experience obviously is culminated from several other, um, you know, which, which is Ralph's approach, right? It, it's film. It's culminated from a certain uh, grandeur or experience from uh, Harry's bar, for example, or if you are having a drink in uh, uh, what's the hotel in, in Rome, for example, if you're having a Negroni, it's it's all those experiences, and you. Put it in this one jewel box um and that makes perfect sense now to take from internally and and putting that out i'm, I'm not quite sure if the consumer i i think actually for ralph laurent it's there it's it's ralph's you know old world aesthetic as well as modern ralph i think there are hotels to be to be developed from there um this takes me back to a little bit about george jensen It's it's not it's not fashion, but this is what we did um, when I was there with David Chu, who was the CEO at that point. And I think David has, you know, had such great ambitions for the brand when he was there as CEO, because um, when I joined, and thanks to David, who I've actually worked on several of his brands in the past when he took over Jack Nicholas um, peril. Uh, I've worked on them when he had Lynx, um, which was a country club aesthetic brand. I've worked on that with him. Um, and it goes back in the days of Nautica. When David asked me to join him, I, we saw that Beijing, and they were out in China and they had a slew of stores. The idea was, we're going to open this great George Jensen stores, design, Scandinavia, in China. What It's amazing. But my thought was like, they don't really know George Jensen as well as you think they do. So, if you open as many stores as you do, it's a store experience. It's not anything bigger than that. So, the great thing that David there was actually decided to take that particular budget and open the Scandinavian, the George Jensen Gallery, which is. A space for Scandinavian culture, Uh, taking over the Beijing Center for the Arts, which is traditionally already an amazing, beautiful um, spot. Uh, Dior had done shows there. So it's a bit international, but it's also a thousand year old like courtyard house in China and turned that into a Scandinavian gallery where we brought in um, all of the design elements so that you can learn about design. You can learn about uh, uh, the history of like 100 years of design, which is practically everything that's been happening in the 21st century and all the different shifts from Art Deco to Art Nouveau to the 60s to 70s um, to 80s postmodernism. It's it's just to have that design conversation. And on top of that, we opened a, a Scandinavian restaurant when this was 2015, The George. Uh, when Scandinavian food was hot, and we earned a Michelin star within the first year. So, I think the idea of um, communicating culture is what I truly love about the job that I'm doing, or where I where I am now after these years of working. And that's what I'm looking for um, in terms of working with a brand.
1: What, what one of the lovely things about what you do and what brands do is 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 that cultural pollinization I mean in mm. a way I, I have this vision of you as like a bumblebee or a butterfly who has flipped from one particular flower to another and you're you're assisting in um, in really just a cultural fluency uh, albeit at uh, at a very luxury price point and 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 to a luxury consumer but um, You know, therein lies the challenge of consumerism.
0: Well, I I feel like I'm a working diplomat when it comes to the brand. Um, I feel like I represent the brand, whoever I've decided to work with, and be a cultural ambassador, you know, and really bring in the values and the the aesthetic and and how to actually tell the brand story in all the different languages. Um, And this kind of goes back to like how I grew up. I don't think I would have, it It, it came naturally because I think I was in KL till I was 11. And then I was t- you know sent off to boarding school. Um, so I grew up in Kuala Lumpur and boarding school in Singapore, um, family in London. So I, I just bounced along all the different continents before I came to NYU. So the idea of being a little bit of a, a nomad and a diplomat has kind of been wired into my frame somewhat. Um, and that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No necessary skill set, but, um, you know, hard to plan for. So let me let me pivot and in, in, in somewhat rapid fire because, um, sure. you know, I, 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 yeah. I stretched you thin I'm- on certain elements. Um, for you, hackneyed question, but I want your answer because I'm very interested in it. What is the difference between fashion and style?
0: Simple answer: Fashion is uh, ever, ever evolving. Um, it's a constant shift, um, and fashion is also a, a cultural, a cultural. Um, what's the word for it? It's a, you kind of read cultural signals from fashion. Um, style to me is very individual um it's very personal and everyone has their particular personal style um style doesn't go in and out of fashion and
1: well let me so so just jumping right on that yeah sorry you're a very stylish man um you surround yourself with stylish people. Who are some of your style inspirations, whether past or present? I
0: haven't been able to like grow up in all the different areas. In Kuala Lumpur, my grandfather uh, was always impeccably, impeccably dressed, whether it's like going bicycling in a white suit, no less, and tie. Um, and, and we have photographs. The, prove this to just wearing his white you know singlet which is a tank top in his older years and smoking his pipe in his like pleated perfectly tailored pleated pants and he was wearing a singlet smoking a pipe with hair perfectly done you know I think growing up with men who took care of themselves and women who took care of themselves had you know a distinct impression um and then from then I again I I always think that you should have a certain basis and a foundation. Once you have the foundation of taking care of yourself, then you can go punk in every way, which of course, uh when I got to London, it was like an explosion of what you can do with fashion. And it's absolutely fascinating. I, and I wish I could be all these characters. And that's probably the the actor in me that want to like emulate everything. But ultimately I, I do lean back to a certain way of dressing which um, I think fit is very important to me. Um, And it's not just the one way. And I feel like I've gone through all the different trends. Um, I think back in the day when I was working with Brooks Brothers and there was a long client, I've worked with Brooks through the three different owners.
1: And undeniably rooted in that, is is leaning into tailored clothing what is it about tailored clothing that that to you is it the tradition of it or is it the the actual functionality if 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 it can be described as such to kind of take any any man's body or woman's candidly and and you know kind of put the proportions in a more eudaimon if i can use my Greek, you know, or just a more archetypical sort of narrower waist to shoulders profile, you know, perhaps hiding some bodily flaws as one ages. Um, Is it that or is it just a nod to the tradition of, you know, men have been uh, outfitting themselves this way for hundreds of years now? Um,
0: Well, I think one, it's, it's, have been outfitting themselves for a long time in terms of tailored clothing but that's not without um, the slight shifts in proportion and fit and that and not even going into you know somebody who's getting larger in life or not but even that amount of, of shifting that that's actually an indicator of like you know how how um how how well you're getting fed, right? <laughs> how, um, the, it, it, it also, every particular fit, a sh- shift in the shoulder, it's a slope shoulder, it's a relaxed shoulder, it's a particular uh, stronger shoulder. That also conveys so much more about who you want to tell the world about yourself. So that as a basis makes tailoring a little bit of a, a uniform, um and I think there's a lot of conversation into like I you know the death of tailoring for all these years. I don't think it's dying at all. I think it's always there. Um there are just a lot more people now than before. So if you actually want to look at data, are tailored suits sold more now than before? Populations have grown. So if you're talking about numbers, I I don't think they have. If you're looking at oh, I think at you're percentage, undeniably
1: think, correct that on actual numbers. Uh, uh yeah. sales sales are up and and increasing um but there yeah. is you know so so to that point there there would be now an overwhelming number of people who who would show up to work or to worship or to celebrate someone's reverent event in clothes that that may not signal traditionally uh respect for that work, that special event, um, mm. that, that ceremony. Uh, clothes that, that themselves are are marketed as comfortable, um, which I, I, I'm a full believer in the clothes should be comfortable. But um, when attending a special event, I think there, there's a necessary genuflection to the event itself as opposed to personal comfort. So, maybe you know I'll just throw that out to you as my comment and get your reaction to that comment. Do you think that somewhat culturally we've we've i don't want to say devolved because that's a value judgment, but that that we've shifted directionally into that and 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 what do you think it says about culture if in fact we have?
0: Um, I think in the last two years, things have changed because the offering of suiting has with fabrics with relaxed cuts it just become more comfortable there's it's so easy to put on a suit and a sneaker and a great sneaker I wish I I'm a big fan of I wear my white converse with a suit and it instantly just I feel great it to me it's like wearing pajamas which I actually do wear pajamas under a suit as well but it to me it's like wearing pajamas it's also like wearing a fitted Um, sweats pants and sweatshirt right and and men have do have done that combination but maybe my my style icons can reveal a little bit of of like what a suit actually does so you asked what the style icons were earlier so my style icons are um uh it's michael chow who's fantastic it's brian ferry um, and my grandfather, right? It's someone I've observed really taking care of themselves. Now, Brian Ferry, always in suits, but also an ultimate rebel and a rock star. And- And,
1: oh, and comfortable. Yeah. And, and- Yeah. And for sex. <laughs>
0: Sexy AF through all the years has always looked amazing, but like always moving and looking great. Michael Chow loves fashion in, in, in his own particular way because you know he's always impeccable when he is with an audience in his Hermes handmade suits and the John Lobb shoes. But when he's also painting, if you've seen recently, this thing has completely left the most indelible mark. I was in Miami. We were shooting a, a, a story based on Michael Chow uh, for GQ. Um, And I had my model, who is actually Tony Thunberg, who's fantastic, he's still working, he's a Swedish, uh, half Swedish, half Chinese model. He he was my Michael Chow, and we were just walking out of Mr. Chow's, but at that period, I think Michael was having a a lawsuit against the other restaurant that's similar in name and um, aesthetic, and he was just down there for a lawsuit. And Michael walks, up to me i was just looking at him in awe um because it was miami he was wearing a black t-shirt black oversized bermuda shorts the brightest pink uh knee-high socks mm-hmm. and his fantastic i forget which leather shoes they were but that particular vision of him at i think at that point he was. 69 70 we're talking about like 10 15 years ago actually probably more um was spectacular and i was like this is so iconic for somebody to be able to but it's all still in the realm of dressed up and he's still turning it out and i don't know if you've seen the hbo documentary he looks fantastic as he's like spreading paint all over the place still completely impeccably dressed at 79, 80?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: He's he's definitely a style icon. So that to that point, I don't think suits are confining. I think they are they actually kind of provide some kind of comfort. Um, because I, I think ultimately men don't really want to think that much about their things that they wear. We do give it some effort, and I think that's necessary, but the default to me is like, oh god, do I do I have to play this character at length and still think about the clothing? So I think the suit's the easiest thing to actually project a certain sense of uh, decorum without working too hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have nicely put ourselves in that situation where you spoke of pajamas. I mean, the suit, it, it may not be something you go to bed at night in, but it is as um, easy to put together as a pair of pajamas or geranimals, if you remember that reference. Um, but, um, yeah. you know, it is, it is, you know, certain occupations afford themselves perhaps a little bit more breadth, you know, if you're a, an artist or a rock star, you know, certainly for creative professionals and for lawyers, there's maybe a, a slightly more restricted um balance if if what you want to communicate with your dress is also wow. as I said this genuflection to to the work or this um also communication of I take the work seriously and I'm not a dilettante right. um which I think tailored clothing certainly does and you know, navy blues and grays certainly do, despite being maybe on the the, the less expressionist side of the spectrum. Um, so how have you, I mean, as someone so creative and probably can see each morning a number of possibilities that you might walk out the door in, and yet when I see you, I rarely see you with knee-high hot pink socks. Uh, despite now knowing that that's something you probably have seen yourself in mentally, um, yes. how do you how do you restrict your uh, your inclinations and are and and is it a professional um, courtesy, so to speak?
0: Um professional courtesy or dress by occasion plays comes into play. so it's it's interesting. Um, I forget who I was listening. Just because through my profession and now, you know, in the last years, um, having really have to balance the work between um, professional and corporate and creative, um, I take that into consideration because, um, you know, fortunate or unfortunately, corporate has certain um, thoughts and ideas and, and limiting um ideas about how one should dress. Um, so I, I always do think I think like creative people think I'm kind of too corporate. And then if I'm with corporate people, they think I'm a little too creative. Um, which I don't think is a bad place to be. I just need to know how to finesse that and I do that with my dress. So um, I think if, if you see me much in in a much more um, pulled together <laughs> look, it's probably in a setting where you know, I, I can't be as crazy as I want to be. Um, that being said, I I do throw the rules out the window because I think after being around for such a long time um, and still being a student, um, it goes back to when, growing up in a school where you have to wear a school uniform you have to break the rules you learn how to break the rules in your little you know in your little way whether it's a pink sock a crazy sock, when you're actually supposed to wear white socks um white shoes with the uniform you're wearing i you know i remember going to my my first to singapore for boarding school Um, and i thought oh my god i'm going to this boarding school i i just knew that it was like a white shirt navy blue shorts situation so i turned up in a white shirt big bermuda navy bermudas knee-high black socks and (laughs) churches churches leather shoes and everyone in Singapore, and you know, they're all in sneakers. They're in school uniform, but they're in sneakers. Everyone turn around like, who is this, you know, dudes that just walked in to our school? Um, and maybe from, from that, but also from that one little incident, I realized, hey, I don't actually have to work that hard. You can do exactly what everyone's doing, just turn the volume up a little bit more, and you'll get the attention you need. <laughs>
1: that's uh that's that's well put well well last question um sure well traveled and well lived as you are uh i i would be very interested to hear and i will try to restrict it to three of your top cities for men's style
0: i i do wish I can get really creative here and, and say that things have changed. I've loved every city I've been to because like Copenhagen has a very particular distinctive um, sense of style um, but it's also a very particular aesthetic that kind of permeates throughout an entire city. So it's not very particularly white like ranges of style. So it still goes back to London for its ability to completely thrill and, and, you know, throw and be punk, really. Um, and I still think that that exists. Um, New York, because it does have a certain range, because I do, people do think that New York are out there buying particular brands because of their appeal and maybe it's a reflection of fashion but if you're out there in Brooklyn any given day or the L train you see people really breaking the rules and to me that's really inspiring. Um, Parisians and Paris because um, I, I, I do think innately there's a particular sense of style so those three are still the cities, despite my like global nomad, like, you know, experiences.
1: Those are undeniably um, strong choices. And we could, we could deep dive, we could write a book, we could co author a book on how, you know, the English never really had their revolution, and yet their style actually gets informed by non tradition. Whereas the French, and in some ways here in the US, we, we are still informed by tradition in, in, in some modes of our style, particularly the French. Uh, I still have in, great envy for how Frenchmen are able to, their scarf game, like like they can just take a scarf and they can take one blue scarf and wear it 12 different ways with the same sort of anodyne outfit and and look stunning in each setting.
0: So the the one other thing that that brings to mind is transcendence, right? When you're trying to do brand storytelling, like brands want to be across the globe, they want to bring their story, and there's an adherence to what the brand um, values and the brand um, uh, aesthetic are. Um, but I also think that it's it's really important for brands and storytelling across all the different um, product categories to be able to co- to connect with the culture, with the global culture that they're descending into. And I think today, um, and, and I'll leave with one thought, it's made things more exciting to me in terms of um, brand creation, when I started when I left Legacy Media, I moved right into, um, that was when websites were being developed, right? The new world of digital marketing. And I remember like starting a website. Everyone's like, you know, do something really pretty for us. Um, no one's going to go shopping online. That worked out quite well for me. And I'm very happy with that. Yeah, um, God. Those this days new... when the
1: website was, was like a postcard as opposed to really your flagship right. store
0: yeah and and the days when you know when you shot fashion stills because it had to sit on the website in the same way um, as it does in magazine print and things have switched quite a bit um, and I think this goes into a conversation of like oh has digital ruined um, retail and retail has has you know completely gone disarray because of DTC I think that we've come to a point where there's a certain clarity now. The hubris has finally settled quite a bit. Um, I think it's important for brands to continuously do uh, strong digital content that sits across all the different mediums and the the developing medium in Web3 and create the best experience. And I think stores are doing that right now on the brick and mortar level so that your consumer, anywhere you are in the world, can experience digitally what your brand is about. And they can go into these special experiences in certain cities where they will really get a full on um, experience of what the brand is. So I don't, I don't think the challenges, I mean, I don't think the operations have changed. I think the challenge is to really define your brand and the actual experience, which touches on hospitality in its way. How do you really get a brand to express itself globally?
1: Well, Marcus, that's a great parting thought. We are are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you everybody for listening in. Uh, Marcus, uh, I will see you soon in real life as, as both of us prefer
0: thank you very much for having me. And yes, see you in real life with, uh, let's have a
1: toast. (laughs) Happy holidays and happy new year. Happy holidays. Thank you. Bye now, everybody.
0: You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and
1: Twitter at at hand of the law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.